This morning we're going to continue as I'm making my way through Luke. We're going to go to chapter 13, and I titled the message, Unless You Repent, Unless You Repent. And as I begin, before I get into it, I I realize that most of the people that are hearing this today, that are hearing me speak, are mature Christians and understand the need of repentance, but pray that there may be some, there may be someone that has not heard that message and and may not understand the importance of repentance and that they may repent and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and give their heart to Him. That's our prayer that, you know, someone might be watching this a month from now or even a year from now or days from now or there may be someone watching today that are walking in sin and doesn't realize that they need to repent of their sins to be saved. Uh, I'm going to change things up a little bit this morning. I'm using the New Living Translation. (laughs) Once in a while I do. And this morning this is the New Living Translation. I did get that note in there, right? Okay. Luke 13, 1 through 9, and then 22 through 30. About this time, Jesus was informed that Pilate had murdered some people from Galilee as they were offering sacrifices at the temple. Do you think those Galileans were worse sinners than all other people from Galilee, Jesus asked? Is that why they suffered? Not at all. And you will perish too unless you repent of your sins and turn to God. The most important words today. Unless you repent of your sins and turn to God, you will perish. Verse 4. And what about the 18 people who, people who died when the Tower of Siloam fell on them? Were they worse sinners? Were they the worst sinners in Jerusalem? No. And I tell you again that unless you repent, you will perish too. Then Jesus told this story. A man planted a fig tree in his garden and came again and again to see if there were any fruit on it. But he was always disappointed. Finally, he said to his gardener, I've waited three years and there hasn't been a single fig. Cut it down. It's just taking up space in the garden. The gardener answered, Sir, give it one more chance. Leave it another year and I will give it special attention and plenty of fertilizer. And if we, if we get figs next year, fine. And if not, then you can cut it down. And then we're going to jump to verse 30, 22. Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as He went, always pressing on towards Jerusalem. Someone asked Him, Lord, will only a few be saved? He replied. Now notice He didn't really answer the question that yes or no, that there would be fewer, great. He says, work hard to enter the narrow door to God's kingdom. For many will try to enter, but will fail. When the master of the house has locked a door, it will be too late. You will stand outside knocking and pleading, Lord, open the door for us. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Then you will say, but we ate and drank with you, and you taught in our streets. And he will reply, I tell you, I don't know you or where you come from. Get away from me, all you who do evil. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, For you will see Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you will be thrown out. And people will come from all over the world, from the the east and west, north and south, to take their places in the kingdom of God. And note this, some who seem least important now will be greatest then. 
And some who are greatest now will be least important then. May God add His blessings to the hearing and the reading of His holy word. Let us pray. Gracious Lord, again we thank You for Your love and we thank You, Father, for Your Word that we believe that was inspired by Your Holy Spirit, that You gave it to us for understanding and knowledge, that we could grow in our, our wisdom, Father, that we would learn how that we can walk in a way that is pleasing to You. But most importantly, we can learn how we can be reconciled unto You, Father. And we believe that step begins with repentance. And Father, we just pray that Your, your Word would go forth and bring forth fruit for the harvest, fruit for your kingdom. And Father, that some might hear this and repent of their sins and turn to you and receive that most amazing gift, the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ. I just pray your anointing upon this word and pray your blessing upon everyone hearing this word today. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Now, there is actually no historical record of exactly who these Galileans were. The Galileans that were killed... And it says that their blood was mingled with their sacrifices. So these Galileans had come. They were going to offer their sacrifice at the temple. And Pilate had killed them and took their blood, mingled it with the blood of the sacrifice that they was going to offer. So they mingled the blood of the sacrificer with the sacrifice. Now some believe, though, that these Galileans may have been part of a faction of the Judas, the Judas, I have a problem every week, right? Uh, from a faction that was called Judas of Galilee. There was a group that disowned Caesar, disowned his authority rather, and they refused to pay tribute to Caesar. Now there's also some thought that there was a feud between Herod and Pilate. There were a quarrel, whatever you want to call it. There was a feud or a quarrel between Herod and Pilate. And these Galileans would have fallen under Herod's territory. So Pilate might have seen this as an opportunity to get back at Herod for this quarrel that they had going on between them. A way to get revenge against Herod. But if indeed this group of Galileans were part of a rebellious group that did not like the Roman authority, which many of the Jews did not, the only ones that probably seemed to maybe like it a little bit were those that were hired by them to collect taxes because they were getting rich. But most of the Jews did not like the Roman authority. So you wonder, okay, why did they bother coming and telling Jesus there was a group of Galileans that were killed by Pilate? I mean, it's kind of like newsflash, right? Why did Jesus need to know this? Why did they need to inform him of this? Well, but Jesus already knew. We know that, right? He knows everything. Well, it could be that they delivered this news to Jesus knowing that he was from Galilee. Well, this might inflict a little bit of anger in Jesus. He might say, well, all right, it's time to gather the soldiers. We're going to go. We're going to battle against Rome. That might be why they informed Jesus of this, hoping that it would incite him to deliver them from the Roman rule because that's what many wanted. And many thought that Jesus was that man, that he was going to be the one to deliver them from the Roman authority. But Jesus didn't do that, did he? Instead... Jesus said, Do you think these Galileans were the worst sinners? Were they the worst sinners from Galilee? Were they, were they the worst sinners around because of this senseless brutality? Did this come upon them because they were worse sinners? And then Jesus gives this second scenario. The Tower of Siloam. It fell on these sinners. It fell on these people. 
But he says, were they the worst sinners in Jerusalem? Were they the worst sinners? Is that why the tower fell on them? Because they were so bad? This tower was a tower that adjoined the pool of Salome. The pool, also called the pool of Bethsaida, is the pool where the impotent people would go and they would lay and they would wait for the waters to be stirred and the first one in would be healed. Well, apparently there was a tower there and it fell, killing 18 people. Now, you know, there are certain times in a lot of scriptures that we read that it's hard for us in today's culture to comprehend, to really wrap our minds around, isn't it? Because their culture was so much different then. You know, Jesus speaking about certain types of farming back then or different things that they might have known exactly what he was talking about. But today we don't. We have to search and search and search. But when it comes to tragedy, we can even relate to that today, can't we? We can relate to that. You know, these men were brutally killed. We can relate to that. Today there are people that are brutally killed. Senseless murders. Why did that have to happen? We, we can relate to that. You know, I think of the tower that fell. And I was reminded a few years back, it was probably maybe five or six years ago, there was a woman that was biking on the, is it called the Highland Trail that we walk? Or the Appalachian Trail? The Highland Trail that goes from Cumberland to Pittsburgh, and they ride their bikes or walk. Well, there was a woman riding her bike on that trail, just riding along, probably having a good time, and a tree limb, not just a little branch limb, boom, fell out of the tree, landed on her, killed her. So we understand tragedy does happen. Why did that have to happen to her? Was she a worse sinner? No. We know that during building constructions, things happen, people die. We can relate to tragedy in our culture. But whenever a tragedy befalls someone, does that mean that they were a terrible sinner? Would Jesus tell us? No. It did not come upon them because they were worse sinners. And today, tragedy does not happen because that person was a bad sinner, a worse sinner than somebody else. You did not get that sickness and disease because you were a worse sinner than someone else. And don't let anybody else tell you that. Because sickness and disease does happen. It happens. They had the mindset that if some sickness or something happened, they must have been a terrible sinner. There's an example in John chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. Now as Jesus passed by, he saw a man who was blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now as I read that and run it around in my mind again and again, I thought, well, why would they ask if he would have sinned because he was born blind? How could he have sinned, right? But they asked anyway, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, neither. This man nor his parents sin, but that the works of God should be revealed in him. Amen. So don't let anybody lie to you and fool you that if you have some kind of illness, don't let them make you think you're a sinner and that's why you've got this. Things happen. We are living in a world that's filled with sin and sickness is all around us, right? Amen. He makes it very clear that this man's blindness was not caused by his or his parents' sin. In Luke, again, he asks a question. If those men were worse sinners than others, then he answers his own question. They were not. No, they weren't. They do not happen because of our sins. You know, it's absolutely true that, yes, 
Death came into the world because of sin. Right. We know that. When Adam and Eve sinned, God said, you will surely die if you eat of that tree. Death entered into the world then, then and there. And yes, there are sins that can bring premature death. I could probably go out and find a figure, think of a lot of, a lot of examples. You know, if you are an adulterer, and you are going and you're sleeping with another man's wife, it could be that that man may come home and check, catch you, and you could get shot. But simple. It happens. It has happened. It has happened. So, sin can cause a premature death. I worked with a man that he was suspicious of this going on, and he went home, but the sad thing is, he's the one that got shot. As many years ago, he wound up getting shot. You know, if you are an alcoholic, if you are a drunkard, there's a very good chance you could get cirrhosis of the liver and die prematurely. Die earlier than God intended you. He would have wanted you to live many years more. So yes, there are some sins that will lead to death. But those tragedies did not happen because those people were worse sinners. Jesus' point is to show that it's not about the magnitude of the sin. You know, mankind, we kind of have a tendency, don't we, to grade sin, right? A murderer, we'll all agree that a murderer is really bad. Really bad, right? I mean, is one of the worst of sinners. A child molester, well, they shouldn't even be afforded the air to breathe, as far as I'm concerned. But we, so we grade sin from big sins. Well, then we have some little sins, don't we? Like lying. Yeah. I mean, we'll all probably say, well, lying's not really that bad. You know, bearing false witness, it's still a sin. It says, I shall not bear false witness. You shall not lie. Friends, lying is still a sin. So we must be careful also not to grade sin and think that one's beyond God's salvation. This person's okay because he only sins a little. Don't grade, don't do that. Don't grade sin. Romans will kind of help clear this up for us. Book of Romans. Romans 3, 19 through 23. Says, Now when now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Pause there for a moment. That all the world might be guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. See, we're not going to be saved by keeping the law. Not one person has ever been saved by keeping the law. And will be. Neither will they will be by keeping the law. It's only for the knowledge of sin that we can know that we are sinners and in need of repentance, right? Amen. I know, continue. But now the righteousness, righteousness of God apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. Amen? Amen. For there is no difference. Listen, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. My friends, don't compare yourself with someone else. If you want to compare yourself with someone else, then compare yourself with Jesus. 
And then you will see that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And why is that so important? Because, you know, just like an alcoholic, the first thing they have to realize is they have a problem. They have to realize that they are an alcoholic before they can recover and be made well. A sinner must realize they are a sinner. And we are all sinners and fall short of the glory of God. So first step, we must realize that. Then realize we need a Savior. Amen? Amen. We're not going to seek a Savior if we don't think we're a sinner. So all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Then we follow that up with Romans 6. This is back to the basics this morning, isn't it? Romans 6.23 For the wages of sin is death. But my friends, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hallelujah. The wages of what we have done is death, but the gift. Friends, if, if I give you a gift and you pay me for it, it's not a gift, is it? No, because you've earned it. It is a gift, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You can't earn it, you can't work for it, you can't pay for it. It is a gift from Him. Verse 5 in Luke, Jesus plainly states that those men, again, did not die because they were worse sinners than the other people. They weren't worse sinners than the people He was talking to. He told them that unless they, they themselves repented, they too would perish. I truly believe, with all my heart, friends, the very first step to salvation, number one, is repentance. The very first step. You can't bypass first the first step. You can't say, whoa, I'm a Christian. Well, have you printed? Well, no. What's that mean? You can't be a Christian if you, if you can't skip step one, and that is repentance. Joseph of Antiquities defines repent as this, especially the change of mind of those who have begun to hate their errors and misdeeds and have determined to enter upon a better course of life, so that it embraces both a recognition of sin, so again, to recognize that we are sinners, and a sorrow for it. And then the tokens of which will be good fruits, good deeds. So we must first recognize and have a sorrow for our sins. Another example that I found of repentance is to do a 180. So we're going down this road of life. We realize we are a sinner. David's got to grab the camera there. And we do a 180. And we turn and go the other direction. If we say that we repent and we keep going the same direction, then we haven't really repented. We have to do a 180 and turn around and go the other direction with our lives. We were walking down that evil path. We've got to turn and down walk another path. And that path leads towards Jesus Christ. So the sure test of whether we have truly repented is a changed heart. A changed heart. And that changed heart will bear fruits of righteousness. So if a person says that I have repented and hasn't turned, then they are a lie. They're lying. They are a fool. If they think they have repented and have Christ and are a Christian, if they have not repented. Ephesians 4, and actually this is a little bit of a long 
passage, 20 through 32. But you have not so learned Christ, if indeed you have heard Him and have been taught by Him as, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lust, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. There's a change there, you see. Put off the old conduct, and you're renewed in the spirit of your mind. And that you put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, putting away lying, let each of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Let him who stole steal no longer, but rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give him who has need. I'm going to pause there for a moment. Let him who stole steal no more. Karen has, my wife has a good friend that they go to Florida for a couple months at a time. And they have a family member that goes out and checks on their house that's here locally. Well, someone broke into their home and stole a lot of stuff from them. They have a pretty good idea who did it. But I know that they're probably angry. They're probably upset. They're hurting that someone would come and steal something from them that's not theirs. You know, that does make us mad. You know, I remember a few years back someone stole a tree stand that I had out in the woods. I paid good money for that tree stand and someone stole it. And I was mad, really mad for a while. I'm thinking, you know, what did I think in my heart? Why didn't they get a job, earn money, and go buy their own? Right? Right? What's it say? Let him labor, working with his own hands. Do what is right. So if you stole, you steal no longer. If you repented of your sins and believed on Jesus Christ, you don't do that anymore. It says, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. Wow. Now there's one that we might all struggle with once in a while. With that tongue that we sometimes have a hard time controlling, right? Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. But what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. And be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. My friends, I think Ephesians gives us a pretty clear idea of what it means to do a 180 in turn, doesn't it? We no longer practice our old, simple lifestyle. We no longer do those things. Let's go back to the adulterer thing. If I was an adulterer and I've said I've repented, I said I repented, but yet I continue to sneak out and have a little fling, then what's that revealed? That I hadn't truly repented. If you truly repented, you're not going to do the things you did before. It doesn't get any simpler than that. We no longer do those things. Verse 6 in Luke, the parable of the fig tree, was very fitting for this passage of repent. Many meanings are given to this parable. But it would appear the Lord's trying to convey the following. The person that planted the tree, of course, is God Almighty. God planted the tree. The fig tree represents the Jewish 
church. Represents the Jews that time. It's planted in his vineyard and that represents the land of Judea. And he came seeking fruit. Well, God required that the Jewish people should walk in righteousness. But they weren't. But they weren't. He says, I've given them three years. Three years I've came seeking through fruit. And you think about that for a moment. Well, how long was Jesus' ministry on the earth? Three years. Three years they rejected the Messiah. They bore no fruit for righteousness because they rejected Jesus Christ. Jesus is the vine dresser. Jesus says, give him another chance. Give it another chance, my friends. He does the same thing with us. He gives us another chance and another chance and another chance that we might bear fruit, that we might bear fruit of repentance. But there will come a day where it will be cut down and cast into the fire. So if we repent, we will produce fruit for the kingdom of God. But if we bear no fruit, Matthew 7 tells us what happens. 7, 17 through 20. Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down, thrown into the fire. Therefore, by, the fruits, by their fruits you will know them. My friends, if a tree is diseased and infected and just bad at the core, it cannot bear good fruit onto that tree. So if you have an apple tree that's got all kinds of infectious disease, it's not going to bear good apples. My friends, if the heart is bad, we will not bear good fruit. But if the heart is good, we will bear good fruit. Someone then asked Jesus a question. He said, Lord, will only a few be saved? Will only a few be saved? Again, Jesus didn't come out and really directly answer that. William Barclay's commentary says that the questioner was probably asking on the assumption that the kingdom of God was for the Jews only and that the Gentiles would be shut out. So Jesus' answer may have shocked this questioner because he told him there will be people from the north, from the south, from the east and the west, from all over the world that will take their place in the kingdom of God. It doesn't matter if we are Jew, Gentile, neither. But it's those who believe in Jesus Christ. Jesus addresses him by telling him how and where to enter the kingdom of God, doesn't he? The King James Version of verse 24 says, Strive to enter at the straight gate. For many, I say to you, will seek to enter and shall not be able. The New Living Translation said, Work hard to enter the narrow door to God's kingdom. The New King James Version says, Strive to enter through the narrow gate. So two of them say strive, one says work hard, one calls it the straight gate, one calls it the narrow door, one calls it the narrow gate. But you've got to work hard. The Greek meaning of strive, well actually the Greek name of strive, I'm going to try this, is agonid zamia. So, agonid. It kind of sounds like our word agony, doesn't it? Ago. Agony. To struggle. 
That's what it means. The Greek meaning of strive is to struggle. It literally means like to complete or compete, not complete, to compete for a prize. So you know, if you are a professional athlete, you're going to compete for a prize. But what do you have to do? You struggle. You, you strive. You work hard. You train. You do all these things all for that prize. Figuratively, it is to contend with an adversary. So there's fighting involved. My friends, there will be fighting involved. Amen. Because as you repent and you're going... All right, that's the camera. I won't go too far. You repent and you turn... So you're trying to go the other way. You're trying to... See, I knew there would be a lot of moving this morning. You're trying to follow that road that leads to the narrow gate. You're on that narrow path instead of the wide path. And you've turned. But as you're going, here comes your friends. Oh, come on, buddy. Let's go have a drink. No, no, I've repented. You keep trying to go back the narrow path. And here comes your friend. Oh, here comes that good-looking woman. Hey, honey, come on. You remember me? Trying to drag you back. So you've got to fight. You've got to fight against the evils in the world to keep your eye and your focus on that narrow gate, that narrow door, to keep your eye on Jesus Christ. There's fighting. It doesn't... You know, we say it's easy to be saved. Well, I'm going to say this. The easiest part is when you kneel down and say, Lord, forgive me my sins. Come into my heart. But then the struggle begins. I hate to tell you that, but that's when the fight begins. Because the devil wants you back. The devil doesn't want you leading others to Jesus Christ either. So that's when the fight begins. There is an adversary, my friends. So strive to enter. Struggle to enter. Work hard to stay on that narrow path. And the, the wide way is easy, isn't it? Many's going that way. You're going against the flow when you're going to that narrow gate, that straight gate. So it's hard. It's hard. We never said it would be easy. You know, many things in life have an easy beginning. Becoming a believer does have an easy beginning, doesn't it? Many things in life have an easy beginning. You know, buying a new car, they've made it easy. Volkswagen has an advertisement that says, sign and drive. That's it. Just sign and drive. Just sign your name, you drive away in the car. They make it really easy. But about six months into making them payments, you're like, why did I do this? You know how many hours I have to work to make the money to pay for that car? You know how much of a struggle that is, right? My friends, having kids is easy. And even fun. Part of it is. But once those kids are born and once they begin to grow, it gets harder, doesn't it? There's a little bit of a struggle there raising those toddlers when they in the terrible twos and the awesome threes or whatever you want to call it. So then after you have them, you're like... Wow, there's a lot of work involved. You know, we're, we're working to stay on that road. There's a lot of work involved in raising kids. They cost a lot of money. Them little people, them little people, they eat a lot. They eat a lot. We've got to feed them. So then you've got to work two jobs. Well, then they start the college. You've got to try to work three jobs just to support them. So there's a lot of work in raising kids. Something that started out easy. But it's really hard. My friends, the same thing goes with our faith. It may start out easy, but it's a lot of work. But don't give up. Keep the faith. Fight the good faith of fight. 
the good fight of faith. I'm getting my words mixed up there. So back to his question. I know, I'm going down that trail and back and forth. The question should not be, are there few that are saved? The question should be, shall I be one of them? That's the question. Shall I be one of them? Don't question, will this man be saved or will that woman be saved? But question, will I be one of them? What will become of me? Because we will all stand before God. And you will not stand there and you will not get in on someone else's righteousness, but only your own. So again, the very first step is the step of repentance. That's where it all begins. I've added Galatians 5. It won't be on the screen. Galatians 5, 13 through 25. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. So friends, even though we are saved by grace... Do not use that grace as an opportunity to sin. That's what that means. Don't say, well, it's not me doing it. Spiritually, I'm saved. My friends, you control that body that you're in. Don't say, oh, it's not really me doing it. You control it. Don't use grace as an opportunity to go out and sin. But through love serve one another, for all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit. Again, there's that war, there's that fighting, there's that struggle. The flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another, so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murder, drunkenness, revelries, and the like. That's a lot of words. So I need a breath. Of which I tell you beforehand, just as I told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. I'm not going through that list again. But if you practice those things, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's in black and white, friends. There's no gray. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such, there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. And we live in the Spirit. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Now I know that I've talked a lot about how hard that is, how much of a struggle it is. But my friends, the good news I just shared. Let us walk in the Spirit. He has not left us as orphans. Once we repent, yes, there can be a battle, but God has not left us alone. He has given us His Holy Spirit. And it is only by His Holy Spirit's presence in us, helping in us, strengthening us, strengthening us, that we will be able to withstand. That we'll be able to battle against the enemy. 
all that the devil throws in our past to try to get us back on that road to destruction. We can repent. It can be a struggle. But know that He is with you. Know that He is for you. Know that He will carry you if it gets too hard. He will carry you. He will take you and help you if we just learn to trust in Him. Call on that Holy Spirit each day to walk in His power and His strength and not our own. Because I'm fearful that if we rely on our own strength, we're going to be drugged back down that road to destruction. So my friends, every day, trust in Him. Rely on His power and His strength. And invite His Holy Spirit every single day. Not just once in a while, but every day. To be in you, to strengthen you, to encourage you, to lift you up. And keep your eye on Jesus Christ and enter into that narrow gate. Repent unless you also perish. Amen?